Okay, page 95 in the New Testament, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. All right. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. <clears throat> a, large cow, a large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. <clears throat> Excuse me. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? He said, he said this to test them, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a, plate, there was a great deal of grass in this place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Well, fear has many faces, and it comes in a myriad of forms in our lives. Some people are afraid of spiders. Anyone here this morning afraid of spiders? I mean, I remember when I was younger, if I saw a spider climbing up the wall, or if I saw it beginning to spin its web in a corner, I would get a little anxious. I would become a little bit uneasy. In fact, there were more than a few times where I'd call someone who I thought was a little bit braver than me to kill that spider, to quash and literally get rid of that fear-inducing thing that was there. Now, some people, they don't call a parent or a spouse. They don't call out to someone who they think would be braver. They just scream, I think, hoping that somehow their screams are going to get rid of the spider, but it never really does seem to work. Now, others are afraid of different things. They're afraid of tight, small spaces, for example. And there's a name for that, claustrophobic. That's the name that textbooks and experts give to that fear. And people who are afraid of those small, confined spaces, they'll avoid things like elevators. And they'll try and stay away from crowded spaces. And maybe even those workspace cubicles that just feel oh so confining. Now, of course, there are other fears. Nyctophobics are afraid of the dark. What begins is a natural fear amongst children as they venture into that unknown can become debilitating for a person later in life as fear 
A fear of the dark actually becomes paralyzing. Around every corner, they see something that could get them. They think of the worst-case scenario and what they might encounter in the dark, and literally, sometimes they can't move in those moments. Now, aerophobics, on the other hand, have quite likely found these travel restrictions that we've been under for the last year to be rather helpful, maybe even liberating, because as flights have been grounded by the pandemic, they've not had to face their fear of flying. Now, of course, those are just a small sampling of the many fears that are out there. We could easily add to that list the fear of heights. How many of you hate being high up in the air? We'd never find you up in the steeple of the church. Or maybe it's the fear of rejection or the fear that's associated with the loss of being in control. Or maybe it's the fear of loneliness or the fear of financial ruin. Or there's a new one called FOMO, the fear of missing out. There's the fear of not having enough. And again, that's just a small sampling this morning of the many fears that we face in this life. As today's scripture unfolds, Jesus and his disciples have just crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're now on what John refers to as the other side, which means they've left Jerusalem behind. And that's probably a good thing, because Jesus has just been in a confrontation with the religious leaders. They've had a little tiff, and they're not too happy with Jesus at this point. But of course, there were some good things that had happened back in Jerusalem, there, were, there was the healing of a man who had been ill for 38 years, and Jesus looked at that man and he said, take up your mat and walk. And you know what? That guy picked up his mat and he walked. Jesus was able to bring healing. Now, of course, that was just one of the miracles that Jesus had performed. There were many others that he had done to this point, many that the crowds, the religious leaders, and the disciples have seen him do. I mean, there was, after all, the first miracle that took place, the turning of water to wine at that wedding in Cana that took place in John chapter 2. There was also the healing of the royal official's child that took place from a distance in John chapter 4. So needless to say, as Jesus and his, his disciples cross over, as they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there are a lot of people who want to be around Jesus. There are a lot of people that want to see him and experience him in hopes that he might heal them and touch them in the same way. And so there's this large crowd that's following them. And that crowd sets the context, it sets the stage for all that's going to take place in the moments that follow. Because arriving on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples, they go up on the mountainside. And we've already learned from our scriptures that this is a common practice of Jesus. He and his disciples often go up on the mountainside. They go there for respite and renewal, a time of rejuvenation, a time when Jesus can instruct his disciples in the things of the kingdom of God. But they're there on that mountainside. As they're there on that mountainside, they can see the crowd beginning to follow. The crowd is quickly approaching And recognizing the remote location of this location, the energy and the physical exertion that it's taken the people to get here, Jesus turns to Philip. He turns to one of his first followers and he asks a very pertinent question. He said, where can we buy bread for these people so that they can eat? Where can we buy bread so that these people can eat? Now, I absolutely love what John says in verse 6. He writes, Jesus said this, to test him. Jesus said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Jesus is the master teacher. 
right? Jesus is the master teacher. He has the answers. He's the God of the universe, amen? I mean, this is the God the disciples are following around. And so he already knows what he's going to do. He fully comprehends the situation at hand and all the logistical challenges that are posed by this location where they are. But he has the solution. He knows the answer. But he tests his followers. And in particular, he tests this follower named Philip. Now again, this is a guy who was maybe there as Jesus turned water to wine. Maybe he had seen that miracle, but if not, I'm sure he'd heard about it. And then he had probably been there as Jesus had healed many who were ill. He was probably well aware of the way that Jesus turned to that man who had been ill for 38 years and said, take up your mat and walk, and the man did it in a moment. He was probably there as Jesus gave instructions that resulted in that royal official's child being healed. The fact that Jesus could do that from afar, news of that spread far and wide. But put yourself in Philip's shoes. Think about what this man is going through in this moment. He's just been singled out. And none of us like to be singled out, do we? None of us like to be the one who are put on the spot. And here he is. He's being tested in front of all the other disciples who are there on that mountainside. He's being asked a question that none of the others are being answered or being asked. Now think back to the last time that you were tested. Think back to the last time that you had to be put on the spot and answer a question in front of everyone else. I remember that time. I remember standing there and I had clammy hands, clammier than usual. My hands are always clammy. But I remember the pressure in my chest as that question was asked. I remember the worry in my mind. I remember the many questions that began to circle as I formulated the answer. I wondered, is this the right thing to say? Should I I say something a little bit differently? Should I preface what I'm going to say? And how in the world would that person next to me answer? How would they respond to what's being asked of me? In other words, in those moments when I was tested last, fear began to creep in. Fear of failure, fear of being incorrect, fear of messing up, fear of not measuring up, fear of being wrong. And so wanting desperately, I'm sure, to please Jesus, Philip looks around and he gives the best possible answer he can think and to give in the moment. He says six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to even get a little. You see, not wanting to appear to be the fool, Philip answered as many of us would in that situation. He answered with facts. He's careful to get all the details correct. He surveys the crowd. He quickly does all the math in his mind. He takes into account every person who's present and how much even just a little morsel of bread would cost to give to each of them. Now, John doesn't stop to confirm whether Philip is in fact right, but Philip's math is probably spot on in that moment. His financial appraisal and his cost analysis of the situation is probably reflective of the reality of what's going on as the crowd is approaching. But Jesus, who's very God of very God, he's not bound by the financial constraints that Philip sees. He's not bound by the financial problems maybe that you and I see. He's also not bound by the fact that there aren't any bakeries or restaurants He's not concerned at all that Chili's isn't offering to-go service out on that mountainside. No, he takes the resources that are at hand. 
He takes five barley loaves and two fish that a young boy offers up. He takes these meager resources, and John tells us he feeds the multitude. But it's not just John who tells us this is recorded in every single one of the Gospels. Jesus feeds the multitude, and each of them agree there were at least 5,000 present who were fed on that day. What a miracle. What an incredible thing. But here's, I think, the even more incredible thing. What Jesus did didn't stop there. It didn't conclude with just feeding 5,000 hungry people. No, he looks at the disciples and he says, after everyone has eaten, go out and collect the leftovers. Go out and get the scraps that are left over. And Scripture tells us there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. 12 baskets of leftovers. What started out as five loaves and two fish now has been multiplied in such a way that there is more than enough. And that's how it is with God. And the miraculous nature of this meal, the miraculous nature of the 12 basketfuls of leftover, the symbolism of it all, it's not lost on the crowds that are gathered there. No. No, they immediately recognize that this is the one who had been prophesied about. This is the one that they've been waiting for. This is the promised one of God. He is one who is better than Moses. He is one who is more capable than Elijah and Elisha. And the 12 basketfuls, they again prove God's provision and his goodness to his people, to the 12 tribes. And again, that symbolism is not lost on the people. So they have this thought in their mind. The Messiah is here in our midst. The one that we've been waiting for is here. So why wait any longer? Let's make him king. And so John tells us they were getting ready to take him by force and make Jesus king. They had hopes. They had expectations. They had dreams of what the Messiah would do. And they knew that if he could do something as miraculous as this, he could more than meet the expectations that they had. But Jesus wouldn't have any of it. Jesus wouldn't have any of it. He wouldn't allow them to take him and make him king by force. Instead, he leaves the crowd behind. And we see this as a common theme throughout the Gospels. Oftentimes when the crowds begin to grow, when they begin to get excited and there begins to be a fervor amongst them, Jesus withdraws. And he does that here. He goes up on the mountain, John tells us, to be alone. To spend time, we assume, with his heavenly Father in prayer as he so often does. But as evening comes, the disciples can't find him. They know that he's up on the mountaintop, but they're not sure where. So they go down, John tells us, to the edge of the sea. They get in a boat, and they start across the sea to Capernaum. Now, I love what John says here again, and he stresses a few things about this situation that the disciples find themselves in. He stresses, first of all, that it was now dark. Daylight no longer existed. It is now dark. For the disciples. And in the darkness, John says, the sea became rough. And he tells us why it became rough. The roughness of the sea is attributed to the violent wind that has been blowing and gusting. This wind is strong and violent to a degree that the disciples may never have experienced to this point. And then John provides one final detail. 
one that we would be remiss if we didn't mention. He says the disciples at this point have rowed out to the point where they are three to four miles away from shore. Now, before we go any further, I want to stress something here this morning. Remember who many of these disciples are. Remember their vocation before they started following Christ. These men, many of them are not novices when it comes to being out on the water. Many of them have lots of experience on the sea. This isn't their first time in a boat. This isn't their first time in rough waters. This isn't the first storm that many of these men have faced. Many of them aboard this boat are seasoned fishermen. Men who from the time they were little were out on the boat with their fathers and their grandfathers out there fishing in good weather and in bad These were men who prior to following Jesus had spent their lives and invested their time and energy providing for their families by catching fish in boats just like this one. So the implication is that things are dark, probably darker and more foreboding than these disciples had ever experienced before. In other words, this is the kind of situation where things could go from bad to worse in a blink of an eye. So this is kind of the environment they find themselves in. And John says the sea is rough, probably rougher than these knowledgeable fishermen had ever faced. I mean, it's the kind of rough where it's stomach churning. It's the kind of rough that's vomit inducing. It's the kind of rough that no matter how much Dramamine you take, it's not going to help. And the other thing that John says is they're too far in their journey to head back. They're stuck in the un- in-between at the moment. They're stuck in the unknown. They're too far from the shore where they left to go back, but they don't know what's ahead. They're in the unknown. They're in this swirling mix of darkness and sea and froth and wind. And it's just a mess. And as they're navigating in the dark, John tells us, they began to see this figure walking towards them. They began to see someone, it appears, walking towards them on water. Now we know from Scripture it's Jesus who's walking towards them, but they don't recognize him. And even if they did, I mean, put yourself in their place once again. What would you do? It's dark. I'd be rubbing my eyes thinking, what in the world am I seeing? Is this my eyes playing tricks on me? Is this the storm? Did I take too much Dramamine? Am I seeing things? And that's where they are. Here in the middle of the sea, the darkness has surrounded them. They're miles from shore, and this figure is coming towards them. And again, I love how honest Scripture is. These disciples who we often look to and often look at and we say they are heroes, they are spiritual giants of the faith. This is what John says of them. They're terrified. They're not just afraid. They are terrified. Now, again, keep in mind who these men are. Many of them are seasoned, experienced fishermen. These are men who have dealt with wind and wave. These are men who have fished for much of their lives. But in all their fishing trips, they've never experienced anything quite like this, and they've never experienced anyone walking to them on the water. They have no frame of reference for what they're experiencing. 
They have no way of making sense of what they're seeing in that moment. And as a result, they're not just afraid. They are terrified. They're extremely afraid of the unknown. They're paralyzingly afraid of the situation that they find themselves in. And so these fishermen do what most of us do in those situations where we feel like we're in the unknown, where we're out of kilter, where our balance has been stripped from us. They put their trust in what they can see, what they can touch, and what they're experiencing. They put their faith in their senses. They forget all about the faith-inspiring events from earlier in the day. They set aside that feeding of the 5,000. They forget about the healings that have taken place. They forget that Jesus can speak and someone can take up their mat and go home. They forget that Jesus can speak and heal someone from a distance. They forget that this is the God that they, can, that they serve. And in its place, they choose to allow fear to set in. The disciples have made the decision to allow the darkness, the distance, and the being tossed about on the waves to dictate and override their belief and their trust in God. They've allowed these things that they're experiencing in the moment to define reality for them rather than the care, the compassion, and the provision that God has proven and shown to them again and again. But friends, let's be honest, isn't that how it often is in life? I mean, oftentimes when we're afraid of the unknown, we allow the realities of our current experience to dictate what we experience in that moment. And we become paralyzed sometimes. I mean, we might sense God is leading us to pursue another job and step out in faith. But, I mean, we're comfortable where we are. There's so much unknown we don't know, it just seems like it would toss us about on the waves of life. And so we allow that fear to paralyze us, to keep us where we are, even though we know God may have something better in store for us. Or that new person in a group, and as we look around that group, we know deep in the recesses of our mind that there is probably someone who would make a great friend in that group. But we're afraid to put ourselves out there. We're afraid to put ourselves out there because of the fear of rejection. Or let's face it, sometimes we've been so hurt by a friend in the past, we've been so storm-tossed that we become deeply wounded and we won't put ourselves out there ever again. Or maybe God's calling us to step out and use a skill, a talent, or ability that he's given us. Maybe he's calling us to sing in church or lead a small group or volunteer with children or volunteer to help down at Sparrow Place but we're afraid. Afraid that we might say the wrong thing. Afraid that those butterflies we experience in our stomach might surface as we're singing and we forget a note. Afraid that we won't know what to say. Afraid that we won't know what to do. Or maybe we feel God calling us to leave, live more generously, to give a bit more financially or to move to some form of graduated giving to give a bit more of what we have, to share a bit more of the resources and possessions he's put at our disposal. But then as we look at the stock market and we see the, pri the, the, stock, the price of stock increasing, we think to ourselves, well, what if I give that now and I miss out on great dividends in the future? 
Or maybe the opposite is true. We look at the stock and we think, well, what if I pull that out now and give? Maybe I won't have enough in the future for myself. Or maybe we look at that second saw that we have hanging in the garage and we think, you know what, I know someone could use that. Or we look at that second blender that we have stored away in a cabinet because it was a good deal around Black Friday. Or we look at that set of clothes in the closet and we think, you know what, someone could benefit from this. But then again, what happens if my saw breaks? What happens if my blender goes on the fritz? What happens if those clothes that I wear right now have a hole in them? I may need those in the future. And so we allow whatever we're experiencing in that moment. Maybe it's just thoughts that we're experiencing. But we allow whatever we're experiencing to dictate our response. And as a result, like the disciples, often we allow fear to dominate in our lives, don't we? Yet Jesus' word to the storm-tossed disciples His word to these disciples who find themselves in the darkness of the unknown, being approached by this unknown person in the water. His word to them is, it is I. It is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Hearing Jesus' voice recognizing his presence in that moment, heeding the instructions that he gives, it changes everything for the disciples. Immediately, they want to take him aboard the boat, and who wouldn't? Because you know what? This is the guy who can speak, and he can heal those who have been lame since birth. This is the healer who can say, you know what? I'm not even present, but your child will be well when you get home. This is Jesus. He's the one who can turn five barley loaves and two fish into enough to feed a multitude and still have leftovers. So they welcome aboard. They welcome him aboard. Their faith is renewed. Their faith is rekindled. And having taken him aboard that boat, now that they are in his presence, now that they're enjoying his company, everything changes. In fact, John says, immediately the boat reached the land towards which they were going. Immediately they reached the land towards which they were heading. Jesus' presence in the disciples' lives, it reorients them. And it can reorient us. Filled with faith rather than fear. Rather than being bound up with the fear of that moment, the disciples are able to finally move forward with confidence towards the destination that God has in store for them. And friends, the presence of Jesus can have the same impact on our lives. With Jesus with us, we no longer need to be paralyzed by fear, amen? With Jesus walking with us, we no longer need to be paralyzed by fear. But instead, like those disciples, we can journey forward in faith. We can journey forward in faith, knowing in whom we have believed and trusting that he is able. Amen? The God that we serve is good. He is loving. And he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so may the fears of this life not hold us in bondage, 
But may we, filled with faith in Jesus, move confidently, journeying forward with him and the power of his Holy Spirit, journeying forward to that life that God has called us to and to that eternal home that he's preparing for us. Amen.